The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then the Moses stretched then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in over, went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is God's word. Good morning. All right. I think this is probably the most jackets and scarves I've ever seen in a, a room. You know, I've lived in Myrtle Beach now, I guess, 10 years, and it's sort of interesting and I guess a little sad that we get so cold so quick. So I was in Canada, uh, I guess it was probably about um, two weeks ago, and it was 15 degrees, and I felt plenty warm. And yesterday it was 45, and I was dying, I was inside. You know, the interesting thing about, and I've had to think about that this weekend, is when it's cold outside, it kind of limits what we're able to do here in Myrtle Beach, because so much of what we do is outside. And so I find myself kind of rethinking what my hobbies are uh, when I'm sitting inside. And so fortunate enough for me, I I love movies. And I I mean, I'm the kind of moviegoer that I'll go to a movie and then come home and then watch another movie later that night. It drives my wife crazy. 
And, but time out. I'm not the kind of movie goer that thinks about the plot or all that. I just think about how does it make me feel when I leave. We do have some people in here who I know try to talk to me about, you know, and they're sitting in the back left, and they're way smarter than me, but they think about the plot and the development of the characters, and I just wonder how did it make me feel? How did it make me feel when I left? So I've given out some pretty good ratings to some pretty lousy movies. Um, don't hold that against me. But one of my favorite movies, I say favorite, is Shawshank Redemption. And I was watching it uh, actually this week, last night. It's such a good movie. And just the, the premise of the movie is that there is a guy named Andy who is thrown into prison, and there's an older man who's been in prison for 20 years. His name's Red. And so Andy and Red become friends. And Red ends up being in prison for over 40 years. That's a long time to be anywhere. And so at, at one point in the movie, Andy talks about um, what it would be like to get out of prison. And Red looks at him and he says, these walls do something funny to you. At first you hate them, then you learn to live with them, and then you depend on them. He said, I don't think I could make it as a free man out in prison. And that's an interesting concept that you figured being in prison, the only thing you'd want to be is free. But Red says that really the only thing I can be is in prison. And it's interesting because I was watching that movie and I started to think about Exodus chapter 14. And that's really what the Israelites are feeling as well, is they've spent 435 years in slavery. And that's all they know. And so when Moses, by God's instruction, goes and frees them from Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea, the first thing they say is, we would have been better off being enslaved in Egypt than being free in the wilderness. And I can't help but think that you and I are probably the same, aren't we? Where the, the very thing that has either embondaged us or enslaved us or that we don't like about ourselves is the very thing that we retreat to because it's our comfort zone. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He says, the good things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And so as people who have been enslaved, the Israelites are struggling with a new perspective, a, a fresh look on what it means to be free men and women. And there's a lot of parallels there in the Christian life where you and I were once enslaved to our sin. We were hostile in nature towards God. And we're learning how to be free men and women in Christ. And we struggle in the same way that the Israelites do with retreating backwards towards that which has enslaved us. And so that's what's going on in Exodus chapter 14. And we'll see, and we'll spend a little bit of time together today looking at what can we learn from the journey that the Israelites begun at the Red Sea? Because I think there's a lot of similarities for you and I there. I think it's important just to briefly note that Randy, last week in chapter 13, served us by 
reminding us that the, the Israelites left with a lot of faith, right? I mean, they, they had so much faith, they were asking the Egyptians for gold and silver in their clothes. I mean, they were walking out of Egypt with their heads held pretty high. And the Egyptians uh, were sort of startled after the 10 plagues, and so they let them go. And we know that was God's design. Well, the Israelites find themselves in sort of a, a funny place. If you think about it, they've been free, and they've been, they've been enslaved, rather, for 435 years. And they're free, but they're not yet to their destination. You see, the, the promise of God to Abraham was that he would set apart a people and also set apart a land. And that land is the promised land, the one that flows with milk and honey. It's Canaan. And so they're in this sort of in-between state between slavery and home. And that's the road that they will begin to walk, the road of deliverance, rather. And so I, I do think, I, I don't want to assume that all of us are either A, familiar with the story of the Red Sea, or B, believe it. I know we are in the Bible Belt here in the South, but... Uh, we believe that there was actually a people who God actually pulled out of Egypt and brought to a sea and parted the sea literally. There's been some conversation where folks have tried to scientifically prove how this could have happened. And, and sure, God probably used science in terms of natural. And it says here that there was a wind from the east. But the way in which it happened could only have happened by the hand of God. And so it's interesting to note that the, the distance between Egypt and Canaan was about 250 miles. So you think about, for, for you and I, that's not very far. But if you're walking by foot in the desert, that might be a little far. So just to put in perspective, Greenville, South Carolina, is 250 miles away. How many of you would want to wander from Myrtle Beach to Greenville for 40 years? Okay, how about if we bypass Florence altogether? Anybody? <laughs> no? Well, I wouldn't either. But the point is that the easiest route was 250 miles straight across. But that's not the route God took them. And we'll learn why in just a few minutes. And so God takes them to the Red Sea. And the Red Sea was about 12 miles wide at that point. And you think about that. That's about from here to Merle's Inlet, the northern part of Merle's Inlet. So the sea was that wide. And God parted the sea, and it says here in the text that there was a wall of water to the left and a wall of water to the right. And uh, I don't know if you guys have seen The Prince of Egypt, the kind of Disney movie about the Red Sea, and it shows little like Finding Nemo fish swimming in the, the water on the sides that sort of probably look like an aquarium or something. But they go across on dry ground, and then the water subsides. So that's kind of the context of where we'll be today. Um, I, I want us to pull four observations or four thoughts um, from the text today. And so if you're taking notes, this is going to be the outline that we're going to work from. The, the first thing that I think we can observe about the Israelites' journey starting at the Red Sea is, number one, that God will require faith on the journey. God will require faith of us, and he required faith of them. The second is that, that God will fight for us on the journey. And we'll see that very clearly in our text this morning. 
The third is, on the journey, God will get the glory. And then finally, on our journey, God will offer us encouragement. So let me pray for us, and then we can uh, work from there, okay? Heavenly Father, we're grateful um, that you change times and seasons. That you don't ask us or consult us when you do so. Your hand moves swiftly and quickly on our behalf. And Lord, I know you have something for each of us this morning. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, instruct us with your word, teach us, shape us, mold us, grow us. Let the preaching be clear. Let the beauty of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us be made wonderful and sweet this morning. We ask for your mercy in Christ's name. Amen. So the first point I want us to spend some time on is that God will require faith of us on our journey. And we see that right from the beginning. And I, I just want to make a point that oftentimes I think faith, we associate the word with a, a religious kind of connotation or a religious thought, is that to have faith in something is specifically related to religion. And that's not true. Faith simply means to have the utmost confidence or belief in something. And so you can have faith in anything. And, uh, and I'm sure here today that uh, that word carries a lot of different meanings to a lot of different people. But today, when we read Exodus 14, here, here's what faith doesn't mean. Faith doesn't mean some easygoing state of mind that makes you feel good or that you're able to easily attain or hold on to. Faith is, a, is actually a really hard thing. Faith is a, feels kind of slippery at times, doesn't it? Where one minute you have it and the next you don't. You know, one minute things are really, really easy to trust God and then you get a phone call and it's really hard. And the Egyptians, rather the Israelites, are the same way. They're walking out at the end of Exodus 13 with a lot of faith grabbing gold, grabbing silver, and they go seven days and roughly 25 miles, and their faith is out the window. God requires faith of you and I very often, and quite frankly, more often than I think we'd like, and in more ways than we'd like. The first way that we see is in verse 10, starting in verse 10, I'm going to read it. The first instance of, of God requiring faith of the Israelites, starting in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I think the most immediate thing that pops out to me is that the Israelites are pressed up against the 
the Red Sea. They've only been free people for seven days. And they begin to hope, right? They begin to hope in what it might be like to start a life as free people. And then just off in the distance, it's a herd, a cattle of Egyptian soldiers coming after them. And they're looking around, and there's really not much place to go. And so they cry out in anguish because God is requiring them to sit and wait. And I think he does that with us. He requires us time at times to exercise faith or to have faith by just sitting and waiting. And that can be a very hard thing. I know it is, is for me because faith says, I trust you on the way out and then I trust you on the way in as well. It's a lot easier for me to square faith up um, in, the, in the context of trusting him on the way out of Egypt, you know, with, when I'm grabbing gold and silver and high-fiving people along the way. It makes it a lot harder when I'm looking at the Red Sea, whatever that may be to you or whatever it may be to me. I, I think that the second way immediately that God requires faith of the Israelites we find in verse 22. Verse 22 says, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Faith sometimes looks like us having to do or go or trust. And, uh, you know, it's hard for us, I think, without, without getting too uh, animated to think about what it would be like across something like that. Um, but it's all relative. You know, I don't, I don't want to minimize that going and doing sometimes is, um, can be in small things where we exercise faith. One of the hardest parts about, I think, the story of the Israelites and their imprisonment and then their, their freedom and their journey in the wilderness is believing that the same God who freed them from slavery was the same God who put them into slavery. The same God who parts the Red Sea and walks them through it is the same God who took them to the Red Sea. And that's the same God who made them wander in the desert for 40 years. And we, we can't pretend to know why God requires faith of us. But he does. He required it of the Israelites time and time again, and he requires it of you and I. Charles Spurgeon, uh, who was a, um, a pastor and a theologian from the 1800s, said that a faint heart is the worst foe a Christian can have. And so I don't want to pretend that maybe faith is something that's very hard for you right now. I know I go through seasons where I have no faith. I have zero faith, zero faith that God is who he says he is, that he'll do what he said he would do. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that you may be uh, having a crisis of faith. If you haven't or you're not, you will, because that is part of the Christian life. The Israelites on their 40-year journey and really their entire history as a nation, they've had crises of faith. So I just want to acknowledge and give you freedom 
that if you are there, it's okay. Uh, It's not okay to stay there, but that God, in his timing and in his way, will move you along in your faith because faith is not something that you or I can muster up. We can't make ourselves have more faith. It's uh, it's kind of like um, I, I hate vegetables. I can't make myself like zucchini. It just doesn't taste good to me. That's a very small example of faith, but you get what I'm saying. Is Faith is something that we see in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but only God can make it grow. And so our jobs and the Israelites' jobs is when God requires faith of us to sit and wait, that we sit and wait. And that what God requires faith of us to go and do, we go and do. And the Israelites needed a very quick reminder, even after seven days, of why they should put their faith in God. And that brings us to our second point is, why would we trust or have faith in God? And that's our second point is because on our journey, God will fight for us. Fighting doesn't mean, and I don't mean to come off sarcastically about this, but fighting doesn't mean that things work out in your favor. God fighting for you and I does not mean that we get what we want, when we want, how we want. In fact, we see very clear examples, I think, of the opposite of that. Looking back in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 13. So turn, turn with me, if you would, there. It's chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So if you would have taken a hard right right out of Egypt, you would have gone directly to Canaan. So if Egypt's here, Canaan's literally directly across the map but you would have had to have walked through the land of the Philistines. So God says here to Moses, I want you to take them the long way because I'm worried that their knees are weak, that their their backs are heavy, that they've been burdened for too long. I want you to take them a different way because if they were to confront the Philistines and you'd have to go through the land of the Philistines to get to Canaan, If they go through the land of the Philistines, they'll turn around and go back to being slaves. I love them too much to let them turn and walk back to what's enslaved them. So let me take them the long way. The Israelites can't see that. They don't know that. They're not sitting in geography class being like, man, it would have been a lot quicker to go straight right. So there's times where God fights for you and I, and we can't see it. We can't see his loving, wise, strong, sweet hand fighting for us. And so naturally, I think at least I go to, he must not be fighting on my behalf. 
And that's not true. Moses says very clearly, halfway through chapter 14, in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And so I think there's ways and times and seasons in which God fights for, God fights for us, and we don't know it. There's also ways, praise God for them, that he fights for us in ways that we can see. And that's clear in verses 24 and 25. And in the morning, verse 24, and in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud, look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And so there's times where we see the proverbial Egyptians or whatever that represents personally to you and I, that the thing that has enslaved us that God visibly and tangibly kills. And we say, man, God was fighting on my behalf. God was protecting me. But I want us to consider that as children of God, he's always protecting us. He's always fighting for us. And he's always caring for us, whether you and I see it or not. There's a, um, a theologian that I've really started reading, and I'm, I'm really not much of a reader, but uh, his name is J.C. Ryle, and he was uh, in the 1800s, and he has a quote that just has kind of hung with me for a while. J.C. Ryle says this, Let us believe that a hand of perfect wisdom is measuring out all our portion." And that when God chastises us, it is to make us partakers of holiness. If afflictions drive us nearer to Christ, the Bible and prayer, they are positive blessings. We may not think so now, but we shall think so when we wake up in another world. So part of the reason... Part of the reason that God fights for us is so that he'll get the glory. And that's our third point, is that on our journey and on the journey the Israelites took, God will get the glory. And I think that's a term that's used uh, often in churches and in Christendom. Here, here's what I mean. By God's glory. God's glory, the word glory simply means to honor or to show honor to something or someone. And you and I give glory to lots of different things all the time, inadvertently and intentionally. And part of what glory means, it's that the eyes of that, that person who's beholding the glory are turned upward towards the Lord. And so we take our view from a, a horizontal view and we turn it vertical towards the Lord. And God's glory is something that's so different than you and I are used to. It's so full. It's so encompassing that God gets glory in his mercy and in his grace. And he also gets glory in his judgment and his wrath. That when God dispenses grace and mercy, or when he dispenses judgment and wrath, eyes are turned from horizontal 
view to vertical view. And we see that very plainly in Exodus chapter 14. Verse 25, chapter 14. says, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And skipping down to verse 28, it says, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. So at that moment, God's glory looked like judgment and wrath on the Egyptians. Now, on the other side of that is what we see in verse 30 and 31. It says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So the Israelites were given mercy that day. And I just want to, I want to say this morning, if, if you know Christ, if you, if you are in relationship with Jesus, then judgment and wrath is no longer on your schedule. That's not what awaits you as children of the Most High, but mercy and grace and love. That there was a time when you and I were alienated and separated from God, that everything that we did and said and thought kindled his anger towards you and I, and we deserved it. But because of what Christ did for you and for me, judgment and wrath is no longer what awaits us. But it is hope and peace and grace and mercy, and not based off of anything that you or I could do. And so this morning, maybe it's good for us to consider, maybe it's good for us to think about the ways in which God has given mercy and grace to you and I. In the same way he see, we see him do it to the Israelites, he does it to you and I. But at times, I, I got to be honest, I, uh, I choose not to see the hand of the Lord working on my behalf, and I choose to think that it's my hand working on my behalf. And so we know that, that God will require faith of us on the journey. We know that God will fight for us on the journey. We know that God will get glory on the journey. And finally, God will offer us encouragement on the journey. You know, encouragement is a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a refreshing thing. Uh, so is discouragement on the opposite side. Discouragement can be a particularly hard weight to bear. But praise God that he offers his saints encouragement and not discouragement. One of the ways we see the Israelites being encouraged is through the faith of Moses. And that's in verse 13 and 14. The Israelites had just got done saying, hey, we'd be better off dying in Egypt than staying here. 
picking up in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I can attest personally uh, that at times and seasons that the faith of other Christians, the faith of other saints, the faith of other members in this church have offered me encouragement when I could find it nowhere else. There are times when I was incapable of generating faith in the Lord. And there are other believers in the same way Moses did to the Israelites that have encouraged me. And that's a means that God uses oftentimes. I think another way that God offers encouragement is what Randy talked about last week, is that there are memorials or flags set up in the ground that we can look back and say, man, God was faithful then and he'll be faithful again. I know for me, um, there are often times, I've started actually, um, and it's not all often, but I've started putting reminders in my phone about moments, significant moments, in which God has been faithful to me. And a lot of times, there are moments that were very uncomfortable. There are moments that were very hard. Sometimes there are moments that were filled with joy. But I don't want to forget, because I will. I'll walk out of here today and forget half of what we talked about. That's how we're wired. We're wired to forget what we look like after looking at ourselves in the mirror. And it's the encouragement of other saints And it's the encouragement of God's past faithfulness that reminds us of who God is. I think finally, one of the ways in which God specifically encouraged the Israelites is with the hope of the promised land. So they were leaving something to go somewhere. They were leaving slavery 435-year history of not even being able to decide when they wake up or when they go to bed. Not even able to decide what they own or don't own. When they work or when they sleep. And the promise that God made to Abraham for the Israelite nation is the same promise that you and I have. You and I have the hope of a future life with Christ. And and hope, as Shawshank Redemption says, hope is a dangerous thing, but it's a good thing. You know, so so what did all these things do for the Israelites here in Exodus 14? And look, this is just the beginning of the journey. I mean, this is starting point A, and we will see the nation, because they weren't actually a nation until God called them out of Egypt. So now they've formed as a people separated specifically for God's purpose. And we'll see them for the next 40 years in the desert 
And then we'll read about through the entire Old Testament as almost an explicit account of the trials, sufferings, lack of faith, growth in faith, and everything in between of that nation. And so today, we can see that verse 31 produced joy and hope in the Israelites. In that moment, when they, faith was required of them, when they saw God fighting for them in visible ways and in invisible ways, when they were able to see God's glory and his mercy and his grace and, and in his judgment, and when they were offered encouragement, it brought joy and hope. And it should bring the same thing to you and I. You know, when I was studying and spending some time looking through this, um, I couldn't help but sort of want to turn and see what happens in the end, even though I kind of know. I just wanted to know, okay, when do they get there? When do the Israelites, who were on this in-between road between slavery and the promised land, when do they get there? And so think about it this way. The Canaan was guarded by the Jordan River, and think about what it must have been like on that day when after 40 years in the desert and 435 years of slavery, when they're standing on the banks of the Jordan looking into Canaan, what must it have been like for them to think about the day when they would be free, when they would be able to tend their sheep freely, when they would be able to raise their families in a free land, when they would be able to rise and sleep, trade and talk and worship freely. What would it have been like for that nation to be standing on the banks of the Jordan looking in? One of my favorite, favorite hymns is called, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand. And it, and it paints a picture of what that day would have been like. And I just want to read you part of it. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. To Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound, I am bound, I am bound for the promised land. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall see that happy place I'll be forever blessed. For I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. We are bound. We are bound. You and I are bound for the promised land. And that's the greatest hope that a Christian can have. Our hope is not on the road from Egypt to Canaan. But our hope is that one day, if we know Christ, that we also will stand on the banks of the Jordan. And that our life in Christ, in the new Canaan, because the new Canaan is where Christ dwells, 
and where Christ dwells is where our deepest joy is. And that might not be a a comprehensible thing right now. We get so caught up sometimes in what's going on here and now. But the greatest day will be that day when you and I stand before Christ and he says, job well done, good and faithful servant. Behold all that I have prepared for you. And he has prepared wonderful things for those who believe. And so I I don't know where you may find yourself this morning. I think I've kind of teetered in between a couple of different things even this week. I don't know if you're needing faith today. I don't know if you're needing to be reminded that God does fight for you, whether you see it or you don't see it. I don't know if you need to be reminded that God's glory is actually to your benefit. Your joy and God's glory are not at odds with one another. They intersect with each other. They're they're perpendicular, that our deepest and most meaningful joy and peace and rest is when God is receiving glory. Or I don't know if you need to be encouraged this morning. Wherever you find yourself, on the authority of the word of God, in Christ, all of those things are yours. Encouragement, a reminder that he fights for you, deep and meaningful joy are all yours in Christ. And one of the easiest ways for us to remember, one of the easiest ways for us to consider and think about our future life with Christ is communion. That's a a weekly reminder of where our hope and where our possessions lie. Just as as the hymn says, when I shall see that happy place, I'll be forever blessed. For I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. And so Christian, this morning, if you know Christ, you are bound for the promised land. And the hope and the encouragement that God will offer you is available in the Lord Jesus. And so before we go and remind ourselves of that truth, Let me pray for us and we'll spend some time just thinking and considering what God may be stirring in us. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we trust that it was your good and divine and perfect will that brought us here. That it was your sweet and gentle hand fighting for us. Would you remind your saints this morning that it is not wrath that is on their agenda.
that it is not judgment that awaits them. That it's your strong hand fighting for them. It's your encouraging voice. And it's the hope of our future life with you. Would you store that treasure up in your people this morning that they would go peacefully and their hearts full of joy. We ask these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.